Welcome to this podcast from St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. We're the three clergy. I'm Elizabeth Garnsey. Peter Walsh. Justin Crisp. And today we bring you Mark 9, 30 to 37. It's a passage that uh, includes one of, the, one of three of Jesus' passion predictions in this dark and urgent gospel. And it's, again, sort of a passion prediction sandwich where we get... Jesus foretelling his suffering and death and resurrection. The disciples don't understand it. That's the meat in the middle. And we have the other piece of bread with a lot more teaching from Jesus. And in this one, we, um, we, we highlight the major themes of Mark, which are uh, fear and false ambition of the disciples. And we've got um, the overturning of the usual ideas of greatness. And in this case, it's a little child who tells us all about it. So here we go. Let's read the scripture. Mark 9:30 to 37. Jesus and his disciples passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Well, I'm in the hot seat. I'm preaching this Sunday, so I'm going to need a little help. (laughs) What do you guys think of this one? Justin, ah, you know, I think it's um, I think it's interesting how in the in the first portion we get uh, the messianic secret, which is one of the themes in the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the recurring uh, light motifs. Uh, little <laughs> musical knowledge there. We, you can ask Ned what a light motif is. Um, our director of music ministry sometime. Uh, anyway, it's one of the recurring themes of Mark's Gospel. Um, here we get a kind of explanation for why Jesus wants to keep it a secret that he's the Messiah. It's, um, you know, he says he, he did not want anyone to know it for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into human hands. And we, we talked about this last week, how, what a counterintuitive understanding of Messiahship this would have been. The Messiah is supposed to be a Davidic king who's come to restore the fortunes of Israel released them from their captors at this time. This would have been the Roman Empire. He's supposed to be a militaristic figure, going to bring the victory. And instead, what you get is, you know, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. <laughs> he's got to be killed. And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. And it says they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Um, you know, perhaps part of the Messianic secret, perhaps part of the reason why Jesus is keeping it a secret is because he knows it is so counterintuitive. And he knows that even his closest friends don't get it, and they're not going to get it for some time, and he needs time to kind of lead them into this mystery. 
I don't know that that completely suffices to explain the messianic secret. It's always bothered me. I mean, like, even as a kid, I'm like, why in the world? I thought we were supposed to tell everybody about Jesus. Why didn't Jesus want to tell anybody about himself? And you see this over and over in Mark, where he works a miracle and he says, shh, whatever you do, don't tell anybody. <laughs> and I'm like, it's the opposite of what I was told to do as a kid. I'm supposed to tell everybody about Jesus. Um, so I don't know that it completely explains it, but it is, it, it does, it does explain, you know, maybe a part of why, a part of why Jesus wanted to keep it a secret for a little while, at least in Mark. Yeah, so interesting. I, I mean, I, I actually think that the real Jesus is way more interesting than the Jesus that we lay on Jesus, right? That yeah. one that you're just describing, that we all lay on him. But in the story here, the, the closer and closer you look at it and you start to get the real Jesus, it's like, whoa, this guy, this guy fits no category, right? So they're up, at Mount, up around Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon as they call it in the Middle East. And they're coming down through Galilee, but he does not want to stop. You know, so he doesn't want to stop. He, of course, by, goes by, will go by sort of by Nazareth, uh, his hometown. He goes to Capernaum, which is where he's hanging, right? But in the first part of this, he's on the move, right? Remember we were talking last week about being on the move. And now he goes into a house. The house is likely to be Peter's house or one of those houses. Those of you who've been on pilgrimage to, the, to Capernaum know that there is... They've got the ruins of Peter's house and a, and a church above it that looks down upon it. It's a small place. And that he didn't want anyone to know he was there. And he takes his closest people. These, these are not big places. These houses, they don't have beams long enough to make roofs on big houses. So it's a lot of little rooms. And he takes his closest people and he's going to try to lay out this mysterious stuff. I think almost everything about Jesus is completely mysterious. It really seriously mysterious. He's talking about getting killed. They don't understand. They're afraid to ask him. I think that sounds absolutely true. They're, they're afraid to talk about this stuff. And then he just takes the way we think of everything and turns it upside down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think the guy is really befuddling. Mm-hmm. befuddling. I always have to wonder why he just didn't explain it. <laughs> I mean, tell us more. But I also think that yeah. we, as his current day followers... There are probably a lot of things he would rather we keep silent about, too. You know, I mean, oh, wow. there's a Jesus that fits onto bumper stickers and in football stadiums. And, yeah. you know, that yeah. it's really the, mis- the great misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And, and when he's telling them not to tell anyone, I feel like you aren't ready to tell anyone. It's kind of what he might be saying. And, oh, wow. you know, there's yeah. a place for silence. And I think one of the critical pieces of this is first of all they overlook that he says he will also rise again they take no hope in that and and they're afraid to ask any questions and i feel like that's the one that's the line that jumps out to me the most in this Mm. passage is if they had asked would he have explained or you know or what and so in a way he's I don't know why he doesn't say more, but I think that throughout all the Gospels. (laughs) (laughs) But we, you know, there's a lot we don't understand about him until we are silent or until, you know, until we have the benefit of hindsight. And even now we still are like, what? What do you mean? What is he saying? So it's an interesting dynamic between Jesus and his disciples. Why do you think the disciples were afraid to ask him? Because I was thinking about this earlier, earlier this morning, because I was a, I was wondering, is it afraid they're, are they afraid to look stupid? 
You know, they're like mm-hmm. they're like all of us in seminary. We're like, you know, <laughs> do anything other than give the wrong answer in front right. of all these yeah, really well, important I people. Or ask right? a stupid question. Yeah, exactly. Or ask right. a stupid question. Are they afraid to look stupid? Or are they terrified of this guy because he's kind of a jerk from time to time? <laughs> I mean, it's not as though in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus has a lot of nice things to say about his disciples. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't exactly call them dullards, but he's not. I mean, he does. Um, he, we're, we just got this after he did the get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. line with Peter. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. he's not exactly a um, a warm and welcoming teacher figure, right? He's not exa- he's right. not a warm mentor of any kind. <laughs> so, you know, why are they afraid to tell him? Are they afraid, you know, is it something about them or is it something about the real Jesus that we've been grappling with for the last three weeks? Mm. Yeah, uh, it's a really great question. I'm unclear whether or not Jesus is a nice guy. <laughs> right. Just to put it out I there. I to say that, but that's really true. I, 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 he, you know, we don't get a lot of warm and fuzzy. We get love, but we don't get warm and fuzzy. Right? Mm-hmm. We have two different things mm-hmm. here. In fact, the whole thing is based on love, and it's based on yeah. what is divine love. But divine love laid on the human condition, you know, he's trying to set it straight, and I, totally. he, you know... I just have to say, my, I would say I'm saying this for everyone. But my whole life is devoted to this guy. But if I had dinner with him, I think I'd be petrified. <laughs> uh, 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 and, and and so I find it completely human that they're, they don't dare ask him. I mean, I completely get that. How about at the the resurrection scene? I love that at the end of the Gospel of John when they're all they're all having they're all having breakfast with him. He's made them breakfast, and it says none of them dare ask. None of them dared say anything because they knew who he was. <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's not the you know. There's several points where they don't they don't dare. Right. Yeah. They simply right. don't dare. And also, the end of this gospel is fear and silence. Mm. I mean, it's just this dangler where we get to fill in an ending of our choice, and someone did go and put on an ending. But I think that there's um, something about fear and silence that's just built into um, discipleship that mm. isn't quite fully developed yet. And um, we kind of live our whole lives that way until we don't. <laughs> but, there, you know, it feels right. like there's these ups and downs. And even in Mark, Jesus takes them up the mountain for the transfiguration. That's right before this passage, mm. right before... Yeah. And then, you know, they, they go down the mountain and they still don't get anything. They don't understand anything about him. <laughs> and then he, they watch him feed 5,000 people, 4,000 people. And, you know, they have a lot of highs and then all these lows. And they, yeah. he still keeps them and still tries to bring them along. So, I mean, there's just never enough. He, he can't give them enough teachings. Um, it makes me wonder how well I understand him. <laughs> I mean... Mm. I'm with you. I think I would be petrified of Jesus at dinner. Um, Hard to know who Jesus would be more like in this case. Like, you know, one of my uh, professors or like, you know, know, like a president or something like that. Somebody who like I would want to impress. Um, (laughs) But I... You know, I, I wonder if the disciples know a little bit more than we're giving them credit for. They know at least enough about what Jesus is talking about and teaching in order to be embarrassed of the fact that when they were walking on the way, they were arguing about who was the greatest. So that silence there, it seems to me, they're like, they know that they, they know that whatever it was they're about to tell Jesus, if they weren't silent, 
Jesus wouldn't like. That's why they're silent. They know he's not going to like the right. fact that right. they were arguing about who was the greatest. Yeah. So they're getting some little ink. They're getting some little bits of Jesus's message. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's a hard one. I have to say, for me as an Episcopalian, I'm like, hmm. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. It doesn't exactly gel with, you know, the Episcopal Church, which has had more U.S. presidents than any other denomination in the United States, right? Um, It doesn't exactly gel with, you know, yours truly, who has an Ivy League education and so on. Um, I do try to be a servant of all, but I don't know that I could say that I've been last of all. Maybe with very few exceptions, maybe very early on in my life. I've not been last of all in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I mean, I, I think this guy is rough. Uh, and I think that he's rough because his teachings are rough. And when I used to teach high school, uh, when I was a chaplain at the Kent School, we all read through the gospel according to Luke. And the kids would all get one of the, one of the questions in the final exam was, you know, like, what are the themes of the gospel? And one of them, I sort of the God of reversal, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Uh, who must, you know, wants to be greatest must be servant. Uh, and and he, he unfolds all this stuff in, you know, the rich man Lazarus. In Luke, there's all of these things, the kingdom of God is likeness. And I think that Jesus is messing with the basic wiring of the human beings, and he's messing with the basic wirings of human culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so when he, he's saying, he lays this on, it's like, oh, wow, that's really hard to compute. It's seriously hard to compute. And I think about like dinnertime conversations or conversations I have with my kids about name the 10 greatest players in the NBA. Does anyone say like name the, either the, the least? Uh, you know, we don't, you know, yeah, I don't even know what the opposite of goat would be. Um, you know, the worst of all time. Uh, or, you know, who's the, who is the guard in the NBA who passed the ball most and got the most assists and was a servant to the other players or something like that. But all that to say, I think oh, that Jesus, I think when we get out of like that airbrush Jesus and we get out of our mindset about who the disciples should be, who Jesus should be, it's, it's crazy shocking. And it calls mm-hmm. deep existential questions mm-hmm. into all of us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's hard when we read the gospel not to lay our stuff on it. But mm-hmm. if you take it, what's in the gospel, it goes bambo, mm-hmm. really knocks you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, he, you know, hard as he might be, he's, he never gives up on them. He, you know, constantly brings them along. They are his followers, for better or worse. His team, he chose them. <laughs> you know, he, they're chosen to follow, and they, they are knuckleheads, and, you know, knuckleheads are us. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, and, and I feel like that's the great thing is um, we're bound by our human impulses and culture but we do know like you said we do know enough to reach higher mm. when we are conscious and Jesus if anything was an ultra conscious human being who was kept mm. trying to make us more conscious and more awake and um you know there he's so quick on his feet I mean what what could he do in this house to demonstrate to them what he was trying to talk about and he finds a child and I guess in the Roman households there were a lot of um, extended family in these yes, Jewish yeah. Roman households. So he grabbed a kid, some servant kid or somebody's child sitting there. And it's so hard for us to hear this passage because for us, children are like little princes and princesses. You know, yeah, they're yeah, like yeah, little yeah, royalty yeah. that we... Um, totally overempowered. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing <laughs> to do with like first century childhood, which they were like non-persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. he takes this right. kind of 
non-being and puts it in the middle and and male disciples of a male teacher you know their greatness for them had nothing to do with having you know coddling little children Mm. and so Mm -hmm. i think he's we have to understand the gravity of that scene that i don't know what the if there is an equivalent today maybe getting a pigeon off the street of new york and saying you know if you receive this pigeon you receive the one who sent you know you receive me and the one who sent me something like that um so what do you make of that i mean how how do you how do you hear that passage or what what can we do with it i think what you just reminded everybody what you reminded me of is really important because this is one of the places where I'm very tempted to go back to airbrushed Jesus, right? I have seen so many, I'll just say, growing up as a, um, growing up in a conservative evangelical tradition, I grew up with so many depictions of like, Jesus loves the little children, like, you know, Jesus with a kid on his lap, Jesus with a kid like bouncing the kid on his knee, Jesus surrounded by kids with a, you know, a little sheep around his neck, that kind of thing. Uh, This was the image of Jesus that I grew up with. And I think that that kind of, um, well, I think there's a romantic, you know, you were talking about kids as little princes, that kind of thing. I happen, this total editorial comment, I might be wrong, but I think that this gets started in the 19th century in a lot of Victorian literature, right? We're talking about Tiny Tim, talking about Charles Dickens romanticizing a kid and making this kid like a site of innocence, right? So we think of childhood as they're innocent. And I don't know, I don't, I don't have any children, right? I don't have any children. I just have a dog. My dog's definitely not innocent. Uh, but I do have, I mean, I got a great nephew. I got a, you some know. Some of your best friends have children. Some of my best friends have kids. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I know some people's kids and I work with kids. Uh, you know, I work with middle schoolers. And I'll just say, I never met an innocent kid, right? I'm not quite but some, some days I'm in the St. Augustine camp, like, uh, you know, so tiny a child, so great a sinner kind of thing. Uh, but I, I don't think that what makes, <laughs> I don't think that what makes kids wonderful is the fact that they are innocent. I think what makes kids wonderful is that they grow mm-hmm. and that they discover and that they have not yet been so like worn out by the world Mm -hmm. that they're not discovering new things and learning more about themselves and about their world on a regular day-to-day basis. That's what's magical about childhood. Mm -hmm. Not that these are like little saints, not to mention little princes and princesses, right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about Tiny Tim here. Mm -hmm. Jesus is choosing like the bottom rung. Like you got the paterfamilias, the head of the household at the very top. Kids are at the very bottom, practically non-persons, mm-hmm. as you're saying. Mm-hmm. That's who he's like. I mean, it does come out of nowhere. It's like, stage mm-hmm. right, enter kid, mm-hmm. put kid on lap, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's not the warm, fuzzy kind of thing. He's talking mm-hmm. about the great reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he's, uh, innocence is not actually the category we ought to be looking for here. It's grace and discovery and learning and growth. And even though the disciples don't seem to be making much progress, maybe they're making a little more than Jesus gives them credit for, they're growing. And I think that Jesus is trying to say, anybody who grows, if you welcome them in that way, you're welcoming me somehow. Mm-hmm. You're reminding me of our baptismal covenant, or the, the prayer at the end of our baptism, where we pray for inquiring and discerning hearts and the, yeah. to, the, the, the will to persevere and the gifts of joy and wonder. I mean, those are things that drop out in adulthood. And I think that when we pray that over children, we're kind of you know, naming what you're talking about, this teachability and the the potential of growth and and wonder and yeah. and all that. So yeah, I think that I think that's a wonderful perspective. Um Do you buy it, given that you got five kids? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
buy that no innocent thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I always say I start with a full head of hair before I had children, uh, which actually is true. Uh, whether or not they're the reason all fell out, I'm un- uh, I pulled out. But anyway, I, I think that the uh, the whole issue here is actually God, and that the issue is is God the the purity of the being of God, divine light, life, and love. And in the pure, in the purity of the being of God, the all of the hierarchical stuff that we have burns away. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that light, and in that heat, and and Jesus is trying to burn away all of the hierarchical stuff that we have built up within ourselves in order to assure that we can present ourselves to the world every morning and all the hierarchical stuff that we have in cultures to organize ourselves. And, and just as you know, what the adage is, little boys gathered together develop a hierarchy. Uh, girls might, uh, girls might, you know, we think of the girls in circles, boys in hierarchy. Having lived in a girl's, uh, being a, a dorm parent in a girl's dorm, <laughs> it can't, I, I don't think, and that's all true. I'll just say that. I, the girls were petrifying to me. But anyway, that's another topic. But uh, to say that Jesus is trying to burn away all of those things, mm-hmm. all of that thing, so that when in the kingdom to come, uh, we are with the being of God, the only thing that lives is love. And, and anything short of love just goes away. And so he's, he's got this, this is like a living parable. He's like, ah, kid, you know, stand here, bam. Uh, I don't need to tell this story because I got an example right with me. Uh, so I, I mean, I think this guy is. I think this guy is worth giving your life to. But I also think it's a serious challenge. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Okay. Beautifully said. The only thing that lives is love. That's what I was going to say. Good line. Oh my god. We better we better stop right there. I mean, I don't think it. we can do better than that. Well, we hope you'll come to church on Sunday. If it's nothing. <laughs> we, <laughs> That's a little hierarchy for you, right? Here's right. the rector. Right, right. Uh, <clears throat> so brilliant. Director. Yeah. Uh, we hope you'll subscribe. As I said, to our... it was nothing. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he said he was unprepared. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. Uh, come to church on Sunday and see if any any beauty comes out of this beautiful discussion uh, from the pulpit. And thank you for joining us. Any any last words from one of you? In the presence of God, the only thing that lives is love. That's it. Amen. Amen. See y'all.